On episode 211 of the Happy Market Research Podcast, I'm joined by Ann Beal. But first, a word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Attest. Attest is a powerful, easy-to-use SaaS platform that connects businesses to over 100 million consumers in 80 countries on demand in just a few clicks. Ask your burning questions, select who you want to answer, view actionable insights that help you grow your business. Join the hundreds of leading brands who already utilize the power of Attest's scalable intelligence platform. Contact Attest today at www.askattest.com slash happymr. That's A-S-K-A-T-T-E-S-T dot com slash happymr. Or find the link in the episode's show notes. Hi, I'm Jamin Brazil, and you're listening to the Happy Market Research Podcast. My guest today is Ann Beal, founder and CEO of Beal Research. Started in 2003, Beal Research is a strategic marketing research firm based in Chicago that services some of today's top brands. Ann holds a PhD from Yale and has worked at the Boston Consulting Group. Ann, thanks very much for being on the Happy Market Research Podcast today. Hey, thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. I'd like to start out with an understanding of where you grew up, your parents, and then also your journey into market research. Sure. So I grew up in Worcester, Massachusetts, uh, which is a city of about 180,000 people outside of Boston. And my parents were professors. So my dad was a professor of chemistry uh, at a local college. Uh, And yeah, that's my, my early days were basically yeah, pretty uneventful, except for uh, I lived in New Zealand for a year. My entry into market research happened after I finished my PhD. Um, I studied social psychology, and I didn't want to be an academic. I really wanted to do research that would make a difference. And so I uh, ended up uh, at uh, several companies, but eventually was at the Boston Consulting Group, where I headed up the market research function for the Chicago office. But my My whole impetus for doing market research was just to do research that would make a difference. I had an academic degree. I could have been a professor, but I wanted to do something that would have an impact. So what was this railing against academia from a career perspective? Why didn't you just follow in your father's footsteps? You know, I did consider it, but at the end of the day, I was really concerned that I would be writing journal articles. They wouldn't be seen by very many people. Uh, people wouldn't take my recommendations. Uh, that, that in fact, I'd be sort of studying very esoteric things and that I wouldn't, you know, be making a difference. And so for me, at least, I wanted to go into the quote unquote real world, even though all of the academics in my life, my advisor, my parents basically said, oh my goodness, don't do it. You're throwing your life away. Um, But I did, and I'm very happy for it. Uh, But it was really around sort of the issue is I just didn't want to study things that, that, you know, people, a few people would read about. So, so really breadth of impact sounds like it was it was important from a, for a career motivation and then also impact of results, also a driver. Specifically, I'm tying that because of the BCG connection, right? Which is, of course, one of the world's largest uh, consulting, management consulting companies. Yes, absolutely. Tell us a little bit about your thesis. Well, I studied emotions uh, and I actually studied gender and emotions and how differential expression of emotion in romantic relationships leads to differential power. 
So uh, that made it really difficult to get a date in graduate school. But <laughs> but uh, that's what I studied. I was really interested in how uh, people are perceived when they express emotions. I was really interested in how we perceive um, others when we are, are differentially express, uh, expressive towards them. And I was just interested in the whole gender thing and how that played out. So that's, that was what I studied. So Boss Consulting Group, then you decided to step out on your own and start Beal Research. Did you have any funding for that? And what was your motivation for uh, being a entrepreneur? Well, I really wanted to work for myself. I had a lot of ideas and I had numerous occasions where I, you know, I have a really good idea and I'd suggest it to my superiors and they'd say, oh, you know, that's a great idea, but not for this study, not for this client. Um, and I'm a pretty creative person. And so I really wanted to do my own thing. I really wanted to put forward novel ways of doing things. And I also wanted to use my training even more than I had been. And so that's what caused me to go on my own. It was just me. Uh, I had opened up the armoire. I had a desk that was an armoire in my bedroom. And that was my very first office. And my first employee was the cat. Uh, she, she did not. Yeah, she did not work out <laughs> at all. Really, I had to fire her fairly shortly thereafter. But uh, I have since added uh, 12 humans who are tremendous people. Um, and we do some really interesting work. And as an entrepreneur, I've gotten the opportunity to work with some amazing companies. I've gotten the chance to suggest new and different ways of doing things. And a lot of times my clients say, hey, that's kind of different. And we didn't, haven't really heard of that before. And sure, let's try it. And so being an entrepreneur has allowed me to do exactly the kind of work that I want to do. I mean, it's really interesting when you think about the journey, right? So the early days for you were, I mean, let's just, let's just cut to the chase. PhD from Yale, that's a, that's a, that's a big deal in academia. Very, I mean, I think about like the people that I know that are professors, they oftentimes are thinking about, okay, tenure and then, you know what I mean? It's, it's a, it's a more of a steady state I would consider. And then moving into Boston Consulting Group, which sure. is uh, high pressure, a lot of, a lot of hours, but still steady in that you've got a, you've got a paycheck coming in. But then to step out as an entrepreneur where there is nothing guaranteed, not that I need to yeah. tell you that, but you know, we're, as entrepreneurs, we live hand to mouth in, in so to speak, <laughs> we earn our keep, we're the hunters in, which is now quite literally, there's probably not a different, a farther away Absolutely. career from, <laughs> I guess maybe working at the IRS uh, right. That would be more steady state than being an academic. <laughs> oh, yeah. 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 No, it's, it is a bit of a jump. And I, I personally never saw myself as an entrepreneur. I never saw myself as a salesperson. I never saw myself as the many things that I've had to become. I always saw myself as a researcher. Um, but I was really lucky in that, you know, I started actually doing pretty well with the business right from pretty much day one. I had a great network of people I had worked with at the Boston Consulting Group who had gone on to do other things. Some of those people are still clients to this day. And within six months, I was actually looking at office space downtown and having a real address made a difference to, I think, potential clients. I wasn't working out of my bedroom any longer. Um, so it was a pretty nice story. But yeah, there's no guarantee with being an entrepreneur. And uh, I, I'd say there's, there's no guarantee any more today than there was the very first day that I started. 
one of the topics that we're going to be that we're talking about in this month or or January, I should be more specific, is the importance of customer experience and center. The centerpiece of customer experience is, from my vantage point anyway, is the emotional connection that brands or that consumers make to uh, to brands, right? And the from what I understand of your thesis, there's you could draw some you know emotional uh, the importance of emotion and how that emotion relates to relationships. Um, talk to us a little bit about emotional connections to brands and and how you are helping these brands address these specific uh, this specific concern. So one of the things that we have looked at is the emotional journey. Uh, just like you have an emotional journey with a person, you can have an emotional journey with a brand. And you, uh, you know, start to become familiar with a brand. It gives you some type of emotional experience. Maybe you have a positive experience or, or sense of it. Maybe you have a negative. And we know from the um, emotional work that we have done that when you have an emotional response that's positive, you tend to engage more with a brand. And as you go along, you have different types of experiences that, you know, lead to different types of emotional reactions that can either solidify and create a strong emotional bond to a brand or that can actually cause the dissolution and for you to sort of disengage with it. Uh, But we've been looking at the emotional journey. We have been really looking a lot at how brands make you feel, but more than that, how they make you feel about yourself. And that's something that a lot of brands don't think about. They don't think about how a brand makes you feel. So when you buy that brand, does that make you feel good about yourself and your choices? Do you feel proud to have purchased it? Do you feel pride when you use it? Do you feel good about what you're doing for yourself or your family or the people that you use that product or service with? Um, and we know that the the more that you feel and the more positively you feel about yourself as a result of using a brand's product or service, the more likely you are to buy it and the more loyal you are to it. And that's uh, work that we've done quite a bit of uh, research on. The, I, you know, my, my, the terror, if you want to call it that, that I've been on lately is all about voice. And I'm deeply concerned that brands aren't paying enough attention to a voice economy. In that, in that world of the invisible customer journey, it becomes imperative that the brand is top of mind. So of course, the classic example is Kleenex. I don't even know what else to call it. I guess tissue paper, but I think that goes into wrapping gifts, right? right? As the poster child. But when you think about acquiring or buying a product through, through voice, Google Home or um, Alexa, how are you seeing emotion and the work that you're doing specifically helping inform the, the brands to make change and, and connect more to the customer? So we've actually seen it in a variety of places. First of all, uh, the model that we use is an, an intensity valence model, which says that you have an emotional reaction to everything. It's it's positive, negative, or neutral, but it's to everything. It's to you know the furniture around you. It's the people you come into contact with. It's the products you see at shelf. It's everything. And that emotional reaction is actually something that propels you to engage or disengage. And so we've seen emotional reactions to packaging. And we do work where we actually code nonverbal facial, nonverbal behavior and facial expressions real time in uh, retail settings. And we've had great, um, great um, satisfaction in terms of 
understanding certain types of packaging is very off-putting to people and actually causes people to kind of back away. Um, certain types of retail settings are problematic for people, but we know that that emotional reaction is big. So we've been helping a, one particular manufacturer just recently take a look at how packaging is actually causing a disengagement with their products because it's causing certain types of associations that are negative and they're emotionally negative in nature. So it's in that case that we're seeing stuff. We're actually able to see um, facial reactions to all kinds of things real time or in terms of discussion forums that we do where we've had people upload videos of themselves, you know, experiencing products and services for the first time. We're able to code that. The place we've actually had a lot of success also is in immediate reactions to product concepts, um, to brands, to new ideas, where people actually tell us what their emotional reaction is. And it's been extremely predictive of their interest in uh, engaging with those brands. So it's stated? It's stated. It's reported. And we have a way of doing it that gets at that very gut level, quick sort of reaction, the kind that you have that you sometimes aren't even aware that you even have, but you just kind of have this, uh, or, oh, you know, it's that level that we're looking at. Is it, is, is this done in a in-person interview or focus group or? We do it qualitatively and quantitatively. So we do it qualitatively where we've actually, you know, videotaped people and coded their nonverbal behavior and their facial reactions, but we've also done it in terms of self-reported where we actually get people to tell us immediately what their emotional reaction is to stuff. And then we explore further into what the underlying emotions are. So when you think about, you know, companies that have done it, done it well, as you've articulated, obviously Apple is the top of my list, mm. uh, you know, just getting the packaging. It's, it's counterintuitive, but the the quality of the packaging in a lot of ways tells me how quality the product is, mm -hmm. right? And, and yeah. so now it's even to the point, they've, they've so educated me on this subject that if I buy a product and it doesn't have good packaging, then I immediately discount it as uh, cheap. So it's, a, <laughs> it's right? It's well, crazy, but it's, it's yeah. true. Well, they have done a lot to give you a very strong positive emotional reaction to their packaging because it's so good, but they've also invested a lot in their brand to make you have a very strong positive emotional reaction to their brand. So they've done a lot of things where when you see their brand, you have certain associations. You think of them as innovative, as user-friendly, as as trendy. You think of them as, as being a company that's you aspire to own their products, right? And then you see their packaging and it reinforces those particular associations you have. Uh, but we also know, interestingly, it's not just your emotional reaction to um, that brand and that packaging. We know that people actually feel certain things about themselves when they own and use Apple products. So in this work that I mentioned to you where we did a, an overview of 17 major brands in the marketplace, what we found was that people who own and use Apple feel more confident. They feel more intelligent. So they actually are feeling things about themselves as a result of owning and using that brand. Now, I don't know about you, but anything that makes me feel more confident and more intelligent, I'd buy by the boatload. Right. And in fact, I do. So <laughs> I definitely am solving for a gap in my Apple products as I stare at my MacBook Pro. And anyways, yeah, exactly. that's right. Yeah. The, is this work that you're doing, is it predominantly, uh, I call it one and done, or is it uh, longitudinal? It actually is different 
projects with different companies. So for one company that we're working with, we're helping them with their communication strategy. So we are actually testing their advertising and we are looking at different ways of emotionally engaging people. And and there are two things we look at. One is the emotional response that people have to their communications. But then there's another piece of it, which is the emotional identification, which is that, you know, how does it make me feel about myself stuff that I was talking to you about. So we're working with them to help them increase those points of emotional resonance. In other cases, we just did a, a project for a major manufacturer And in that case, we were actually trying to understand why a particular product wasn't selling. And we were doing real-time emotional analysis at retail. And we found that there was a particular issue around the packaging that was causing some disengagement. So very specific research around that. In other cases, we're working with brands to really help them just understand what does their brand evoke and how can we help them understand more about the, the places of the emotional journey that could be better, that lead to an, a better overall uh, emotional um, experience with that brand. So let's shift gears a little bit. You have run a successful agency for, I'll call it uh, over 10 years. Yeah, I know. I 15 know, years next time. I know. Yeah. <laughs> I just, I'm at the spot now where I say two decades and I'm just like, oh my gosh, that's impossible. That guy's really old. He did it for two decades. <laughs> anyway, so um, what are two challenges, two key challenges that you've faced in uh, running a market research agency? Only two. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. That's that's a fair point. Um, I would say there are challenges, I think, around, you know, we compete with a lot of the the big boys. So we compete with some of the big market research companies and they just have a lot more money to, you know, throw advertising out there, a lot more money to increase their awareness and small smaller companies like ours just don't have those kinds of deep pockets. So there's a challenge around, you know, letting people know what we do because people often say, oh my gosh, you, we didn't know you did this. And there's so few companies that do what you do. Um, so that's one challenge. I think other another challenge is really around sort of, um, you know, having um, educated buyers who understand some of the, you know, the intricacies of market research. I think, unfortunately, I've seen market research, you know, people want it faster, cheaper, and, you know, um, they want to do it themselves. High quality, right? Yeah, High choose quality. two, right? So I think that can be a challenge uh, as well. I think some other challenges around sort of retaining and attracting really top talent when you're a smaller firm. Uh, and we try very hard to maintain, you know, we have really great people. Um, but, you know, the industry has changed over time. You know, people sort of, you know, want to stay at a place for a couple of years and move on. And um, the whole concept of staying with a company for a lifetime is just an odd idea, I think, for many people. So, yeah, that, I mean, I think you're right about the 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 influx or the transition inside of the workplace, especially in a highly competitive market like Bay Area, you know, San Francisco, Chicago, New York, you're always competing for talent, either retaining or acquiring new talent. What is one of the ways that you've been successful at keeping high, high quality talent engaged or, and or attracting the right people. I think it's the work that we do, quite honestly. People often say to me, you know, the projects that you do are so interesting. And, you know, that's one of the ways that we retain people is by having something that they can sort of intellectually chew on and 
really kind of think about and, you know, understand. And it's not just sort of the same old, same old. We are always trying to improve. That's one of our core values as a company. We invest in research. As, as you know, we, we actually fund our own studies about research, things like this emotion work uh, that I mentioned was something that we funded ourselves. Uh, we continue to publish, you know, I've published a couple of books this year. So we've really trying to sort of almost be like an academic type organization, but we are a business. So, and, and sort of always have that intellectual rigor um, as the center of what we're doing. Yeah, that's a tremendous amount of overhead, right, for the organization, especially one that's, you know, in the sub twenty employee size. Um, the the volume of stuff that you're of of content that you're spitting out, like you said, two books in two thousand eighteen. I think you did two in two thousand seventeen, <laughs> right? Um, I might have done one. I don't know. Was it one? I can't remember, but I think it was two. But anyway, yeah. the you know that plus driving new initiatives like what you've just described. I mean, this is a significant amount of overhead. How do you, and focus, how do you maintain that, walk that line of, to your point, you know, driving profit and also building brand? Um, I think it's a function of um, just, you know, what we believe in. And we, you know, we basically invest in what we believe in when we can, when we have the availability to do it and, and the funds, when we have uh, the resources and the, the human power, uh, we do that. And when we don't, we don't. So, but it's, it is a core value of ours to, because we believe that if you're not improving, you're really losing. So if you're not really focused on trying to be better, then you're, you're going to be really good at what you used to do, but the market changes. And the reality is market research, you know, when I entered this industry 25 years ago, it was really different. I mean, I think we did all telephone interviews back then. Internet was this weird concept. And now it's kind of getting to this point where people are saying, well, I really want to launch my own survey. So how can you support me in that? So, you know, it's it's really around if you're not uh, changing, then you're kind of falling behind. Yeah. I, okay. So this point, this point is so important. It's actually going to be the title of a blog post I publish here in the next couple of weeks. But the, the gist of it is we have to see the world as it is in 2019 and 20, mm-hmm. 2020, when we're framing out the products and solutions in our go-to-market strategy and the way that we interact with customers, as opposed to viewing it as 2015, which is unfortunately still stuck in a lot of the market research agencies that, I, that I've uh, talked to. Yeah. And, and I'll give you a great example, and that is social media utilization, right? So, you know, we... If you look at the millennials and uh, Gen Z, social media is a cornerstone of mm-hmm. their time. It's a it's a material place for them to, that where they ex- exist. And in fact, I, just this morning I was having breakfast with uh, another entrepreneur, and and we were talking about this this very point. He was like, "Gosh, you know, I'm we're starting to punch through, but it's not great." And so I started looking at his. I sat down with him and started looking at his uh, feed, and he happens to mm. be a B two C, not a B two B like us. But you know, he's not making any investment on Instagram, mm. and mm-hmm. yet that's where all of his customers are. Yeah. So, and, and and the really good news for him is nobody else is in his space either. So he has this huge opportunity to almost for free. I mean, an investment of time. But the thing that he kicks against, and the reason it's so hard, is it's just not. I mean, you know, he and I grew up with rotary phones. That's kind of my. It's <laughs> <laughs> kind of like my baseline, right? Of of age. Yeah. If you know what a rotary phone is, yeah. then you're, you're right. Then you and I. Anyway, so. 
So that's the right. That's the challenge. I think in a lot of ways is we just have to accept the world as 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 it is and and not judge it as good or bad, right? Uh, or as time wasters or whatever. That's just where the consumers are. And then from that, we should be able to. We will be able to, you know, punch through. I'll give you another great example. Sorry about my monologue. Mm, um, not at all. Uh, LinkedIn. So this is a marketing research company, uh, or actually a services company. Mm-hmm. And I was talking to their CEO, and, and he was complaining about, you know, whatever. He, this guy, I said, well, look, let's look, to, let's look at your LinkedIn. So we look at his LinkedIn, and there's just no activity there. Mm. And he's got something like I don't know, fifteen hundred to two thousand connections. Well, I said, why don't you just take the time on your plane ride to, on, on your flight to write a post and have it be from your heart. So not about, hey, look at me, look at me, but you know, just like, you know, the early, whatever, the 2018 mm-hmm. uh, lessons learned. The thing got 30,000 organic views and like, I don't know. Wow. Yeah, it's performed better than anything I produced this year. <laughs> that's interesting yeah it is and so the and so anyway my point is that is and now all of a sudden that of course is going to be a material part of his uh strategy going into 2019 Mm. right because you just have to go to where the consumers are and and not and stop this whole judging you know right wrong or not a good fit I, i think about the point that you made a moment ago you know consumers want by consumers, I mean market researchers now, sorry. So market researchers, you're right. They moved from a, a caddy, which is the telephone or, you know, in mall intercepts. Mm. Now you to a, to a internet enabled. And now they're, now we're at a, I want to do it myself right. internally. Yeah. You know, how are you going to come alongside me researcher and, and aid me? And that's where I think you got to just, you know, we have to start checking our, our um, assumptions. Uh, yeah, that's right. And, yeah. and figure and make sure that we're operating correctly in this new world. Yeah. Well, uh, interestingly, you mentioned these examples. I'll give you another one. I had an interview with a woman recently who wrote a book and she was interviewing me because she had a, uh, a similar topic to, to my uh, one of my books. And she had a release party for her book and it was virtual. It was on Google Hangouts and, it, and it's broadcast on YouTube. And I've never imagined having a release party that was virtual, but there it was. Hundreds of people went to her quote unquote virtual book release party. I think that, see, exactly, exactly. That's the point, right? And we, and we have to, have to, have to at least be willing to try these things mm-hmm. because we, we learn from the wins and we learn from the losses. But if we don't try, we don't get either one of those learning opportunities. Exactly. Yep. So you talked to us about the importance of investing, you know, in, in knowledge and growth. And I couldn't agree more on your, this core value. Um, and I do believe that there's no such thing as steady state in life. You're either advancing or you're not. Right. right? It's this, this law of entropy that we have to constantly fight against. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what do you see as a key CEO tip to success? I would say that um, one of the things that no one ever tells you to prepare for is that there are some real highs and some real lows to being a CEO. And I think the highs are extraordinarily high, but I think the lows are extraordinarily low. And I don't, you know, I think we have this vision of being an entrepreneur and you get to, you know, determine your destiny and, you know, you get to do the kind of work you do, but no one tells you about how challenging it is 
um, and how wonderful it is, I think, in some ways. So I think that's one of the things that you can always be prepared for. Um, the other thing that I learned along the way, and this is something that other CEOs have told me, is that nobody will care as much about your business as you do. And that's something that uh, has always kind of amazed me that, that, you know, I always kind of felt I worked so hard to create this business and create jobs and get people health insurance and everything. And, you know, at some level, I will like, you know, you know, breathe and, and sort of live this thing 24 seven. And other people don't have that feeling. And that was something that, and I care so deeply about my employees and care so deeply about my clients. And, you know, I think that's something where you really do invest your heart and soul in these things. And sometimes you're surprised that it's not always reciprocated. And I think that's one thing I've heard from other CEOs is how deeply they care about their businesses, whether they started them or not, and how sometimes not everyone shares that. So I think those are some of the things that I've learned. Yeah, you definitely have to, I'll call it callous up. And then the other the other side of it is, you know, as an entrepreneur, we assume all the risk, but then we also assume some of, not all of, but some of the reward side right. as well, right? For sure, for sure. Yeah, and, and, and I think I think that, that you know, you, the, that saying, you can't understand the color white unless you understand the color black, yes. right? And vice versa. Yes. So to your point, you know, that contrast, the highs and the lows, that's really creating that full view that, 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 um, I believe connects us to the outcome of the business that isn't just at a just recognize at a financial level, but also at an emotional level. Absolutely. And you are very emotionally invested. I mean, I don't, I work with a lot of CEOs and I don't know any CEO who is not really sort of living this sort of, you know, 24 seven, uh, regardless of whether they started or not, they just care so deeply. So, yeah, for sure. So you have uh, hired, fired, promoted uh, staff for the 15 mm -hmm. years. What do you see as three characteristics of an all-star employee? Uh, the first thing is something that was said to me on my very first day at work at my very first job, my first market research job. I said to a senior partner at the firm, I said, what is it that really determines whether someone succeeds her here or not? And he looked at me and he said, it's the ability to see the forest from the trees and the trees from the forest. So the people who can have a big picture and view of things and then can get into the details and then do from the details up to the bigger picture. And I think that really is the case in market research. The people I see who are really successful are people who are really good at going from the very high level to the low and, and back. Uh, and if they're not good at one of those things, they they get people who are good at the, the, the area where they're not good. Those are the people who do the best. I think the other thing that I see is that people who really function as team members are the ones who do the best. And I often say that, frankly, with my clients, I look at those as partnerships. I don't look at myself and our, our services as, hey, we're going to give this to you and you're going to be happy for it. I want for there to be a a level of involvement and reiteration with those very smart clients that we work with so that we can, you know, really do something better together than we did on our own individually. And the employees, I think, who are really smart are the ones who understand that they work really well with each other and really leverage the strengths of their colleagues. And they do the same with their clients. So I think those are, you know, two really big, big things. And then lastly, I, I believe, and I think this is an area where 
market research is not really known for, but I think being creative is a really big predictor. Having lots of ideas, lots of different ways of doing things is to me someone who, who's worth their weight in gold. I've seen people who aren't that quote unquote smart, but who have a lot of ideas and they go far. Yeah, for sure. You have to have both, right? You have to have the ideas and then you have to have, I call it the intestinal fortitude to uh, realize a specific idea or maybe a set of ideas, you know, over time through to uh, action or to market. Absolutely. So do you have any specific special offers or what's got you excited right now um, that you're positioning in the marketplace? I know you had your book release recently. I did. Um, that's a actually not a market research book. It's one of the few books that is not a, it is a research book, but not a market research book. But that book is uh, Cinderella Didn't Live Happily Ever After the Hidden Messages in Fairy Tales. So that's something I did on my nights and weekends um, and is a data analysis of fairy tales. So a little bit Love different. It. Yeah. Um, is that it, on Amazon? It is on Amazon. Yes. In uh, ebook right. and paperback form. The thing I'm probably most excited about, though, in the business right now is our work on emotions. And it's had me actually traveling around all over the country. And I've been presenting uh, a really uh, fun presentation on work that we did. It's work we invested in. So we own the data. It's a couple of really big studies. It's a statistical model. Um, we validated it and, you know, we use it in all of the work we do, but it's something that I really like to present. I give some examples of how it actually works in the marketplace, but it really looks at and answers three questions. What is it that predicts whether non-customers will buy from you? What is it that predicts whether repeat uh, purchases occur and what leads to brand advocacy. And it's an analysis of the emotions that you need to experience for those three things to happen. Um, and it's a really fabulous and fun uh, presentation that has really, people tend to say, hey, I didn't really think of things like that. Makes a lot of sense. And it's really actually changed uh, how some people are approaching some things, which is very exciting for me. Even whether, whether or not they use our research services or not, it's definitely got people thinking a bit differently. And if people want to get in contact with you, how can they reach you? Uh, they could reach me by phone or by email. They can, yeah, it, it, they can go your, on. Your website is? It's bealresearch.com or bealrt.com. So that's, but it's beal, B-E-A-L-L, research, all one word, .com. And you can get uh, contact information there, call or email, whatever works for you. My guest today has been Ann Beal, founder and CEO of Beal Research. Thank you, Anne, for being on the Happy Market Research Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's been such a pleasure. And thank you, everybody. As always, the show notes are complete. You can find Anne's contact information as well as links to her recent book, which I just purchased during our conversation today. Can't wait to read it this weekend. Have a wonderful rest of your day. This episode is brought to you by Attest. Attest is a powerful, easy-to-use SaaS platform that connects businesses to over 100 million consumers in 80 countries on demand in just a few clicks. Ask your burning questions, select who you want to answer, view actionable insights that help you grow your business. Join the hundreds of leading brands who already utilize the power of Attest's scalable intelligence platform. Contact Attest today at www.askattest.com slash happymr. That's A-S-K-A-T-T-E-S-T dot com slash happy mr or find the link in the episode's show notes